Cool. We're continuing our series going through the book of Psalms right now. So we see this book is a collection of songs. And these um, show us the whole gamut of the human experience in song. We see sadness and sorrow. We see happiness and joy and everything in between. And we see it through the lens of um, a sovereign God who loves His people and desires to know them personally. And so today we're going to go through three psalms specifically uh, that, that show us an, an, an example of this. It's a smaller, um, smaller image of the entire story of Scripture. So we're going to start today in Psalm 22. And uh, we're going to continue to Psalm 23 and 24. You guys have heard Psalm 23 before. It's one of those that's quoted all the time in churches and in songs and even in movies. Uh, it's one of those things that we hear over and over again in our culture. It's something that's kind of become a part of uh, the, the, the psyche of a culture as a whole, especially American culture. And so we see these things apparent, but today I want to go through and talk about, okay, what do these things mean? What, what is this trying to communicate to us? Because uh, we all look at this world through a certain lens, right? It's called a worldview. We look at these things and we, um, through our presuppositions, through where we come from, through our understanding of the world, we perceive these things in a certain way. And so, whether that be um, our opinion on the new Star Wars movie that's coming up, is it good or bad, or the uh, contract on the new Facebook Messenger app, you know, it's, it's all these things that we read, all these things that we see, we're interpreting through a framework that we already have in our minds, right? And the Bible is this way too. We, we look at this... And, and our background, our understanding changes the way we see it, right? But the difference between the way we interpret the Bible and the way we interpret everything else is that the Bible was written by God. So there's a, right off the bat, there's a significant difference here where our opinions become a little bit dangerous because we start applying what we think and what we feel to the words of God. Um, and so when we do that, it can take God's words out of context. And so we believe that Scripture... Is written by men, yes, but it was inspired by God. And because it was inspired by God and His sovereignty, has made this book to be trustworthy. We can trust every word that it says. We can trust it. Uh, we can trust what it says to the point of living by it, of living according to this word. And we also know that this word is the only way by which we know God. We may know things about God through other means. We can look at the stars and see that we have a God who's a great creator that makes beautiful things. But to know Him Himself... And to know the story of what he's done for us, we need this book. We need these words. And so the Psalms um, tell us this story. And the Psalms do so in a way that's very personal to us. The Psalms never deal with problems in a shallow way. The Psalms are very real. They're very raw. And so we're going to jump right in. Let's uh, jump to Psalm 22, verse 1. And you see it up on the screen here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there as well. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now often when you think of the Bible's words, you think of the next chapter where it says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we think of things about how God gives us peace and He gives us happiness. But this is in the Bible too. This is really sombering, isn't it? When we look at this, God, why have you forsaken me? That's very real. But we feel this way sometimes, don't we? Or when we don't get what we want, or when we're facing sorrow, when we uh, have someone around us that dies, or gets sick, or gets cancer, the reality of the world 
doesn't always jive with the, yeah, happy-go-lucky, God just wants to bless you and make you really rich so you can live up on the hill, you know? It's, it's not always that, right? Life isn't always that. So we see in the, in the book, we see this, and we also see this verse somewhere else. Uh, we see it in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself quotes this passage. This is when he is on the cross and he is about to die. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the Hebrews are really cool when it comes to literature. They're really smart. In fact, they wrote the greatest book in history, if you, Hebrew Old Testament. is incredible literature. So what Jesus is doing here is he says the first line just so you assume the rest of it is also true. And so what we're going to look at today, this is on Christ's mind when he's dying on the cross, just before he dies. Why is that? Let's press on and see. I want to read Psalm 22. I'm going to start at verse 2. You can follow along with me. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him, for He delights in him. And then we skip to verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. And then verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. So as we go through Psalm 22, if you've heard the story before, where Jesus is hung up on a cross, sentenced by His own people to hang there and to die, And we see that his hands are pierced. We see that in Psalm 22. We see they cast lots for his clothes. We see that in Psalm 22. Now, mind you, this was written 1,000 years before Christ was born. So we see these parallels. We see that these stories go hand in hand. These two stories are inherently connected. The book is communicating that to us and saying these two things are together. And as we go, we see that um, reiterated over and over again. And so this message today... It's about the Good Shepherd. These three chapters are called the Shepherd Psalms. And uh, in this one, we see the Good Shepherd and we see where we were without Christ. We see our state without Christ. Where our life is fundamentally hopeless. Where our brokenness, it's innate. From, from when the world was made, when it was made beautiful and flawless we're the Garden of Eden, and we see this beautiful creation, the way God wants it to be, and then it's broken. And we call that brokenness sin. 
And that sin is inside all of us. It's, 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 the, the universe itself is broken, and we are broken, and we cannot help but sin. We cannot help ourselves but to do the wrong thing over and over again, where we, um, we get sick, and we do wrong things, and, and, and we die. God did not intend for any of this. He gave us hope. And even from Genesis 3, He illustrates that hope. He says that there is one who is coming. And the Old Testament carries on that story and says, there is one who is coming, there is one who is coming. And so now David, the writer of this psalm. Some of your Bibles have above this chapter, if you look in it, it says, to the choir master. Often the psalms are written to the choir master. What the Greek says is it says, to the end. Now, there's a word for this called eschatology. It's called the the study of the last things, the things at the end. And that's what the word in the Greek is, too. The things at the end. This psalm is written not for some guy that runs a choir in Israel 3,000 years ago. It's written for the master of all things. It's written for the end of all things. It's not written just to apply to David's circumstance then. It's written with something bigger in mind. Now, we can go into lots of cosmic space-time continuum stuff about how David could have written this stuff a thousand years before Christ. But we know that this book is inspired by God, and we know the words that are written here are from God. And so, in a sense, God pulls back the curtain for David, and David writes these words to point us to something that's going to happen later, to the shepherd that is coming, to the king that is coming. The last word of this chapter... Verse 31, the last line there says, He has done it. That word is tetelestai. That's the same word as Christ's last word on the cross. Tetelestai, it is finished. So the work of Christ on the cross is to make payment for our sins. So all all those bad things, all that brokenness that's inherent in the world, Christ dies as payment for that so that it's all better. It's payment, it's done. To tell us die, he says as he dies, it is finished, it is done. Psalm 22 ends that same way. Christ dies, and it is finished, it is done. These two things, again, they're connected. So that's where we were. That's where we are without Christ, without hope. Now let's look at where we are in Psalm 23. You'll recognize this one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall not want, it says. As in, I I want for nothing else. I have all these things, and I could want for nothing else. In verses 2 and 3, we receive rest and refreshment. There is peace with God. Without Him, there is no peace. Our lives press forward day by day by day, but at the end, Life just ends. But with Christ, we have hope for the future. We have hope for eternity. And more than that, we have hope in the present. We have hope that we have a sovereign God who loves us, 
who cares about us day to day and cares about our daily lives so that even as we live now, we may live serving Him and we may live with the confidence that we have a God who loves us, who is personal and cares about us, and we may live with the relationship with Him. It's really cool. The sovereign God would care about us. He also gives us restoration and righteousness. You see that in verse 3 where we are in this state where we are broken and hopeless, and He restores us to a place of hope. He adopts us, as the New Testament says often. That we are adopted into His family. My, uh, my old pastor back in North Carolina, they've adopted several kids, and they went to Ukraine to adopt a kid. And they go out there to Ukraine, and the agent comes back and says, well, actually, we've got a couple of kids if you can take a couple. And they say, well, I guess we could do that. And they come back, and they say, well, actually, we, we, have, we have three, if you could take three. Um, I, okay. They come back, well, we have four. Can you take four kids? They're all brothers and sisters. Can you take them all? And so they're crying, and they're figuring, okay, what, God, what are you doing? And so they end up with four kids. They go out there for one kid. They, adopt, they want to adopt one kid from Ukraine. They come back with four kids, and they're all like eight, nine, ten years old. They're a little bit older. Um, they'd only been married for a few years at the time, so all their kids are, are much older than they've been married. So when it comes to having marriage experience, kind of preparing yourself for kids, they didn't have any of that. But God prepared them for it. And that grew to understand how meaningful adoption is. Where they look around in this orphanage in Ukraine where these kids are without hope. They've already given up hope of finding a family because... Ukraine, they don't really have a great system for having kids adopted. In fact, most countries don't. Even America doesn't have a great system for it. And so, there's not a lot of hope for these kids that they will have an opportunity for a family. But through God's sovereignty, He gave those four kids an opportunity to have a family. And in the same way, we have an opportunity to have a family. God brings us into His family, we receive His inheritance which is both earthly and eternal. We have an earthly hope of serving Him and resting in His peace. And we have an eternal hope of being in His peace and in His kingdom, things the way He wants them to be forever. He offers us that. He offers us that freely. It's an incredible hope. And this is all found. These things are true and we see them in the New Testament. We also see them 3,000 years ago in a book written by an Israeli king who would not meet the king he was talking about, but he had faith. He believed that there was a king that was coming that would offer his people a home. Because they were already in the promised land. King David is in the promised land that the people had hoped for. But then they get there and everything falls apart. They get conquered. They get wiped out. Two generations after David, the kingdom is split up, thrown apart, and people are exiled to different countries. Exiled from the promised land, God had promised them, yet they still keep talking about the promised land and God still keeps promising them There will be a land for you because it wasn't that land at all. It's a land that's still coming. We haven't seen it yet either. We'll get to that more in a minute. He offers us protection in trouble, provision in the wilderness, and a home to go to at the end of the day. He offers us a family. But it's interesting that we only get to the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want after we've passed my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I guess where we go first We get to these places where we are without hope. We have suffering, we have anguish, we have anxiety, we have depression, we have sickness, we have death. We see these things around us 
and they leave us without hope. And often they leave us with a doubt that there is a God at all, let alone a personal God who loves us. Yet this reminds us of the hope that we have. And when we have faith, we see evidence of God at work. Um, DJ, I, DJ and I had a conversation with a guy at a national night out this week who is a uh, self-professed atheist who so does not believe in God. But he has a Christian youth ministry degree from before he became an atheist. So he went to school, studied to be a youth minister, a minister of the gospel of God, and then changed his mind after that. Um, it's a little bit funny, but, but this is a struggle that I think all of us can relate to in a way. Even, as, even if we are a Christian, active in our faith, there are times where we look at this and we go, I don't believe it because I don't see it. So often we can get to that point. I see friends with cancer. I see the kids that don't get adopted, that don't have homes. Um, And even doing research lately on the human trafficking going on in Los Angeles. These are hopeless statistics in many ways. But there is a bigger hope. There is a hope that there is a king who loves all of his people. Even those that are in slavery, even those that are sick and they are dying. And we see it here. There's a God who loves His people. And it may not be apparent to us. We may be in the stage where we say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there is yet hope that is coming. And the means of that hope on this earth is the church. It's us. It's a sombering challenge though, isn't it? It's something where we look at these things and we go, I can't fix it. But we may have peace even in those moments where we say, I can't fix it, but I have a God who can. I serve a sovereign God who loves His people and gives us hope even in the hopelessness. That we may have trust and we may have confidence in Him because He works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8 says. So where we were is in this hopelessness. But we may be brought into His hope as we see in Psalm 23 into His redemption, into His grace, so that we may in turn pass that on to others, so that we may illustrate the love that God has shown us, the peace that He has shown us, so that we may bring those out of slavery and into freedom. Those with no family, bring them into a family, whether that be our home or our church. We have the opportunity to do this. This is where we are, and this passage reminds us of the truth and the hope that we have. And it reminds us of our dependence, because we don't get to peace on our own. Not real peace, anyway. We can can stick all sorts of band-aids over our weaknesses, and we can pretend that it's not there, but at the end of the day, there's still no hope without the hope that He gives. The hope that He gives for eternity. The hope that He gives in our lives now. Let's go to Psalm 24. This is the good part. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, so the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the promise of a king for Israel. They want a king. They want a king. And God says, okay, fine, I'll give you a king. So they get a corrupt king. And the king is corrupt, just like the rest of them. He's selfishly motivated. He's very handsome, very powerful, very rich. But he's corrupt. And in the end, that ends with his death. His corruption ends in his death. And then when they get a new king, they get a better king. A shepherd boy, actually. A kid that hung out with sheep all day. And smelled weird, probably. And suddenly, this is the one that is going to be the king of Israel. And we read in Ruth of how God carries on His story by the faith of His followers. And the faith of those people led to Ruth and Boaz. And two generations later, you have David, who becomes king of Israel, the shepherd boy who becomes king. But David writes in the Psalms about another shepherd that's going to come later, the better shepherd, the better king, the better ruler, the Lord. So when David says this, it's it's likely this song was sung corporately for the nation of Israel. So when they would bring in the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence in Israel, it was the symbol of saying, God is with us. This is the law that He's given. It was the crumbled up stone tablets and it was part of Moses' staff. This is, this is the things that God has given us directly. And so we hold it, we revere it. This is God with us. So they would carry it into the temple and they would sing this song as a choir. The whole nation would sing it out. So this song's not about David. It's about the Lord. But the Lord hasn't come yet in this way. Because we can look at this language and we go to the New Testament again. We go to Revelation 19 where the Lord returns. So as Jesus comes to earth and He dies on the cross as payment for our sins. Payment for that brokenness. So that things may be made new again. Then we see His resurrection and we see an example of that newness where He rises again and shows us here's what new life looks like so that we may have that new life as well, so that we may also have a resurrection for eternity and on earth. And it illustrates that to us. And then Christ ascends into heaven. He says, I'm going to send someone better to you. I'm going to send something better than myself. So better than God Himself walking on earth, there is something better than that, Jesus says. And so He sends the Holy Spirit. Now this is where things get interesting with Trinitarian theology. Because the Father, you have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all one, but they're all distinct. And so you have the Son who physically walked on earth and then ascends into heaven, but He sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what comes inside the believer, indwells the believer, and guides us. It is, in a sense, the Christian conscience to boil it down and make it really generic. But it is what guides us, and it is something far more personal than uh, having Jesus even walking around with you because it's inside of you now. You have the image of God inside of you where God is guiding you and leading you, convicting you, reminding you of what is true, helping you to replace the lies in our head and our hearts with truth. Helps us to do that. And so we have that promise. But the king himself has not returned yet. 
So the resurrection of Jesus is the inauguration of his kingship. It's him illustrating to all the powers of the universe, I am in charge. And at that moment, all eternity is affected when he rises from the dead. And that is the hope they're talking about here in the Old Testament. Because the hope of the resurrection of Christ is eternal. Those in the Old Testament are saved the same way we are, through Christ. They didn't know his name yet, but they knew about the Redeemer and they had faith in him. And so we do the same. We follow in that example. And so this illustrates to us the King that is yet to come. This is where we are going to be. So we've seen where we were. Hopelessness and pain. And we still see it, right? While we're still on this earth. We still see that hopelessness. We still see that pain. We still experience sickness. But we have the hope that God gives us peace even in the midst of that. Even while there are enemies, we have one who draws near to us. We have a shepherd who is with us at all times. Guides us and leads us and gives us peace. We have hope for the future as well, that God will come and set up His kingdom on earth. So that it's not just us working as a church to end slavery and to end poverty. To pray for people that are sick. We pray for healing. We pray for hope. But it's in the hands of God to actually do those things. And we have hope that He will one day come and He will finish what He started And He will make this earth look like His kingdom again. Look like the better garden again. That we may have hope. We may have peace. And we may have a personal relationship with God with our lives. And that we may illustrate to this world. Here is the hope that we have. Here is the love that is promised to the people um, in our community. So in Anthology, we seek to do that. We do that in a lot of ways. So um, my, my role here over the last few months now has been... Uh, working on a lot of justice ministry stuff. And that's kind of part of where some of this stuff comes from because you read it and it's kind of hopeless. Because um, there are so many people in slavery in Los Angeles, but it's kept under the rug. And even LAPD doesn't know what to do about it, and we don't know what to do about it. We're trying to, we've got to raise a lot of money, and we've got to have homes that we can, even when we pull them out of it, we need to have places for them to go. So there's so many things that go into this, and it's discouraging. But we do it because Christ has called us to it. And if we may bring one person out of slavery and into freedom, then we have shown them the same thing that's happened to us in our hearts. This is the same hope that we have. That we may go from hopelessness to hope, from despair to joy. From loneliness to community. All of these things are promised to us. This is the hope that we all have. The psalm says over and over again, who is worthy? Who is worthy to ascend the hill? Who is worthy to go up? So the, so the Old Testament in the Hebrew ends in Second Chronicles. And it, the last words are, who will go up? Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who will go up? And then Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. He will go up. He will ascend the hill. He is the one who is worthy. We know David's not worthy as he's writing this because we know that later... He uh, ends up in sin. He's tempted. He has this guy murdered and sleeps with his wife. Smooth move, bro. (laughs) But we see this guy who's supposed to be the great king, supposed to be the one who sets the example for us, and yet he fails, and so we know he's not the great king. And even Hezekiah, who comes later, is supposed to be the great king. We see him. He's, He's undone by his pride. Solomon, David's son, who's the wisest man that ever lived, undone by his pride destroys the kingdom. But we have a king who is coming. We have a hope that is coming. 
And it's a great reminder for us. It's a great hope for us as we read. Even this Old Testament passage. A little bit of hermeneutics today. How we interpret things. It goes back, we all have our worldviews. We all read these things through our own lenses, through our own presuppositions. But when we look at this, and we look at it through the lens of the rest of Scripture, which is the way we interpret the Bible, we look at it in, in light of itself, in light of what God has told us and instructed us, and we see that we have hope. We see this is, this is offered to us and promised to us in every situation. So if it's in Los Angeles, and if it's um, where I'm from in the southeast, and if it's in Africa, if it's in Iraq with our brothers and sisters who are having heads cut off by those that um, would say that you need to convert to Islam or die, and so they choose to die. These are somber things. And we see that this is the reality of the world we live in. We don't want to sugarcoat it. Because the Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat these things. It faces it head on. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, this is a man who, um, who is a man after God's own heart. He reflects the heart of God in his life. And then he falls to sin. And he, and he can say, God, why have you forsaken me? And then in the next chapter say, but you are near to me. Because we go through these things and that's okay. And as the church, we want to be honest with each other. We want to be sincere. And so I'm, I'm not the greatest communicator. I'm not uh, the most brilliant expositor of the Word. But I do know that we all have a hope. And that God has offered that to us. And He's offered us peace and grace and joy and love and kindness. And He's offered to bring us into His family. And that we have that hope. And when we read this book, it encourages us and helps us to be real, to face all the junk that happens in our lives. And we may be honest about it with ourselves, with each other, and with God. We may face these things. And we may press forward because we have a prize, as Paul says, that we, that we strive towards the prize for which Christ has called us heavenward. That there is an eternal hope for us in the kingdom of God, but there's also a present hope that God will dwell with us and guide us and give us that grace and that peace now, presently, in our lives. It's an incredible hope. So, that being said, I'm going to pray. And uh, we will continue in worship today. Our good God, we thank You for this hope. We thank You for this peace and the grace that You give. And, and we thank You that we can be honest with You, that we... When we struggle, when we face anxiety and depression and failure and whatever else, that we don't have to ignore it. That we may come to you honestly and we may say that we feel abandoned, that we feel hopeless. And that you respond to us in those moments. That you respond with your loving kindness, your everlasting love, your everlasting patience. That, Lord, as so often we... When we were kids, we go to our parents and we nag them and eventually they shut us off. We know that you have unending patience. That even as we may continually fail, even as we may continually not live up to the standard we set to ourselves and the standard you set for us, that you continually love us. And God, we thank you for this. God, help us to remember it. May we cherish this word. May we read it and understand it well. Help us do that. Help us to apply it that we may seek and understand the truth of what You are doing for us, what 
you would have us to do, to show our love for you, to show um, your kingdom to our community, to show um, justice and love and peace. So God, help us do that. Help us to understand this. Help us, Lord, to illustrate the love that you've shown us. And God, if, if we don't truly understand it, give us illumination. Help us to see this truth. Help us to see your love for us and your desire to know us personally. Increase our understanding of that. Help us to understand and know you better because we have a personal God and we thank you for that hope. So God, help us again. We love you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.